Welcome to ABC Cafe. My name is Anthony Apodaca. Today's guest is Paul Fleckenstein. Paul is a longtime labor and environmental activist here in Vermont. He's a member of the Democratic Socialist of America and the Tempest Collective. In this episode, we talk about the Biden administration's non-actions on addressing climate change, the current state of the climate movement, and concrete ways that we can all participate in addressing this catastrophe or hopefully avoiding it. We also talk about a few local environmental issues, such as the proposal to rezone 10 acres of property in order to expand the Burlington Airport. Without further delay, here's my interview with Paul. Paul Fleckenstein, thank you for joining me on ABC Cafe. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. So on March 15th, you had an article come out in Tempest magazine called Another Silent Spring, Strategies for the Climate Movement. And I invited you on the show to talk about that, particularly the strategies for, I'm sorry, I read that wrong, strategies for the climate struggle. Um, and I wanted to invite you on to talk about that, particularly the, uh, the strategies part and, you know, what we can do. But I think, um, or as you, as you write, quote, uh, what socialists and the left in general can do now to best catalyze more disruptive, sustained, and mass-based climate action. Um, before we dive into those issues, though, I think it's important to spend a little bit of time describing the problem. Uh, so you write, how is it that capitalism has made no emissions reductions for 30 years, despite the well-understood ecological and social impacts of global heating? Uh, quote, one study shows that 25 fossil fuel producers account for 50% of all planet heating emissions. Yet you see a deeper root of the problem than simple than simply saying uh, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, can you describe what that deeper root might be? Yes, I went to this deeper root to explain the impasse that I think the climate movement is in now, and we can go into that more, kind of how it's developed over the past uh -huh. six or seven years. Uh, what were the high high water marks, and how did we get? And and I think a lot of people um, um, got to the place where there's a recognition of an impasse. So that's a period that we could also discuss. The base question uh, around capitalism is why, after decades of knowing of scientific facts about where global heating is going and what causes it, nothing has been done. Emissions continue to rise. And despite the protests and despite the widespread opinion, the widespread opinion polls that show people want something done around global heating, uh, governments and corporations don't respond. So the um, understanding that I try to convey in the article is that fossil fuels are systematically um, part of capitalism. And this is the way capitalism has developed over the past couple hundred years. Fossil fuels have been the engine of capitalist development. And so there's a concept fossil capital or fossil capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I, I make a distinction between primary fossil capital and fossil capitalism or fossil capital in general. Um, fossil, pr primary fossil capital is what most people think about 
the oil corporations run the show. <laughs> uh, so the oil majors have tremendous influence over government policies, both domestically and internationally, and do everything they can to protect their investments indefinitely. So they want to continue pumping oil and generating profits as long as there's something to pump. And the shareholders demand it and government policies reflect that. So that's a big barrier. Um, that requires <laughs> mass movement and struggle and a super strong political challenge. But it's also something more, um, and that's fossil capitalism in, in general. And that means that every business, every technology, transportation, electronics, every sector, tourism, agriculture, manufacturing, depends on fossil fuels for inputs, mm -hmm. either for powering mechanisms or machinery or as inputs like plastic or fertilizer. The whole system runs on fossil fuels. So when we're talking about a transition away from fossil fuels and other types of energy sources or increased efficiency or ending product lines, that's a disruption to capitalist business plans. So there's going to be resistance to that change at all levels. And it's, I, I maybe make the analogy in the piece that it's like, a, um, uh, the demands that workers might make um, in a union contract campaign, better wages, benefits, some control over workplace processes and working conditions. None of this has already been built into the budget of the owner. So they fight <laughs> the demands for changes. Um, and eventually some get made or don't get made, the budgets get readjusted, there's a new business plan and things move on. So that's kind of the context that I see we're fighting against here. Two levels, um, both big challenges and the depth is not widely recognized. So you mentioned that there'd be a disruption for, you know, business and business leaders, capitalists. Wouldn't there also be a disruption for workers? So, I mean, I can see that in some industries, that disruption, if you're talking about, for example, end of product lines, to put it more specifically, is there a contradiction or a, a resistance, you know, built into working class movements in some, across some industries? Right. There are some industries where, well, it's hard to know what workers think about every policy that goes, um, that um, gets proposed. Uh, but we do mm -hmm. know in the, in the construction industry and um, in the fossil fuel industry, where there are um, sectors of the workforce that are unionized, um, those unions, um, tend to back um, um, the corporations that their workers work for mm -hmm. in terms of business expansion, protecting fossil fuel infrastructure, et cetera. So there is um, uh, an interest 
um, in those unions, at least in the leadership of the unions, and no doubt supported by a lot of the union members in supporting the status quo in the sense that it guarantees high paid, higher paying jobs, some right. job security. And certainly that's one of the uh, big challenges in a transition is guaranteeing security uh, for the working class uh, while industries shut down or trans transform. Um, but I think the other side of that is that the background is that capitalism does not provide right now uh, stability and good living standards uh, for the majority of workers. So we are all facing already uh, a unpredictable future without you know, most workers with, without any real retirement prospects, um, lack of health care, poverty rates, job and in, job insecurity, that's all built into the system mm -hmm. already. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, for the, um, I think you already kind of mentioned the high watermark of what you see as a climate movement, but I think, I think now would be a good time to transition into what the current state of the climate movement actually is. Um, you referenced the high watermark of 2019 and you referenced protests that we saw kind of unprecedented, uh, for, for climate change, um, globally, not just here in the U S you know, all over the world, millions of people, uh, that was 2019. So what happened? <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think that was a culmination in 2019, uh, probably the past three or four years, which began in 2015 with the global protests running up to the Paris climate meetings. And then there was Standing Rock, everyone will remember in 2016, uh, which galvanized people across the U.S. and the world against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Greta Thunberg started her strikes in 20, her um, Fridays for the Future in 2018. And then over the next year, these strikes build up into September of 2019 with millions of people participating. It's a high water mark, I think, both because of, uh, well, for several reasons. One was the sheer number of people participating. Um, two was the idea of a strike. Um, that is many people um, led by youth at that point um, understood or recognized that nothing's being done. There's a climate emergency. We have these agreements. There's been, as Greta Thunberg says, blah, blah, blah for <laughs> a couple decades now, and there's no change. So we have to disrupt things. Um, Extinction Rebellion, also exploded during this period, um, focusing on direct actions and some kind of disruption. So there was a sense that um, normal kind of letter writing, elections, uh, rallies aren't gonna do it, that we need to do something more to force the ruling class to make changes. So I think a very positive development and it, it also had the concept of a strike, which is how the working class wins concessions from fossil capitalism by shutting down production, interrupting the flow of profits and forcing change. So right there at the core, there was a sense of some recognition of where our power 
actually lies uh, to force reforms in the system. Mm -hmm. Then uh, after September 2019, um, it was all in on the elections in the, in, in the United States anyway. So the hope was to uh, elect Democrats, elect Joe Biden, um, at least there would be some possibility. Well, at first, um, at first it was uh, at first maybe yeah. it was elect uh, Bernie Sanders. When, when did when did when did the, when did it become obvious that Sanders was uh, not going to be in there? Because there was there was a little bit. I think some of the campaigns in the beginning on the left were much more optimistic about the Bernie Sanders campaign than Joe Biden. But I can't remember. I thought wasn't it December twenty nineteen when. He officially got tanked. Uh, let's see, 2019, I think it was in, it was just after the pandemic kind of broke loose and mm -hmm. shut things down. So, yeah, that, so was, that was a 2020 you know, winter mm -hmm. of, um, in, in uh, 2020. Oh, but yeah, anyway, you were saying there was a focus on elections. Yeah, I, I, I think um, AOC and Sanders, um, promoted a Green New Deal. Um, I think that was supported by millions of people. Edward Markey from Massachusetts. So a whole range of progressive Democrats were calling for a Green New Deal. That was definitely uh, the um, a draw toward participation in the elections. Um, there was, I think, some projection and, and hope and you know, that Biden would do something given how well publicized and knowledgeable people a lot of people were about a green new deal which is basically a combination of providing uh social security uh uh job job security for the working class uh during a green transition away from fossil fuels combined with uh investment um, in um, non-fossil fuel energy sources and related technologies that are necessary to make the transition. So I think a whole package was one and who came out on the end uh, of the election cycle was Biden. And then after it was clear that Biden was the candidate, it was all in for Biden. Um, and then that led me to kind of the first impasse that one year Biden administration, nothing. Um, in fact, Biden doubled down on uh, all of the above energy policy like Obama. So yeah, we're gonna do, um, we're gonna do solar electric and wind energy and electric cars, but we're also gonna double down on uh, fossil fuel mining permits and yeah. et cetera. Um, and then we've seen that in the recent weeks around uh, the war in Ukraine and U.S. imperial competition with Russia and China. It's open as Vegas. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of my points in, in the, the article was that we have to develop or a priority should be to develop infrastructures of dissent. And this is basically democratic, person-to-person, uh, -person, often locally-based organizing um, that is able to provide experience, political education to wider layers of working class people 
young young people um, that develop uh, that helps develop the ability to um, expand and give a movement um, some um, stability and endurance through election cycles and crises. So the infrastructures of um, dissent are around, um, maybe they could be people's Green New Deal local groups or climate action around pipelines or a group here is working on a pro uh, campaign around airport expansion, which we can maybe get into later. Um, but instead of kind of rooting um, the climate movement in hopes that the Democratic Party or capitalist politicians like Biden are going to provide a Green New Deal for us, um, we need organizations based in communities and workplaces that are going to be able to fight to win things. Mm -hmm. uh, not the Green New Deal or transformation initially, but uh, immediate things that make a difference in people's lives and reduce emissions. And can so, be the building block to something else. Because that can be the building blocks to something else. Um, and I think um, these... Uh, this type of struggle is also has to be more resilient uh, in crises. So I, I think there's some mistaken idea about how a transition is going to happen. And that's part of a, a Green New Deal, um, as it's mostly understood, that there's going to be an incremental, somewhat gradual, but hopefully fast, process of government-led transition that's going to phase out fossil fuels over time, put in uh, supports for workers, retraining, uh, um, housing is going to mediate this transition, uh, sectors of business and capital are going to agree to this and because they see it's mutually beneficial and you know, we'll reach a future. That sounds great, Paul. What's your problem? In, mass <laughs> transit, you know, housing for all. Um, flying cars. <laughs> and the way we get there is to is primarily through elections. So you elect proponents of the Green New Deal into leadership, into Congress, a president who supports a Green New Deal, and this happens. But I think the actual world, as we're seeing now with the war in Ukraine, is different from that. That we're in a period of crises, and climate is just one of them. Imperial competition is another, where things are not smooth. And we need, and what I argue in the piece, that we need to echo socialist politics that is going to be able to operate independently and is of the two capitalist political parties and not get pulled to supporting U.S. militarism or into supporting endless concessions with capital that put off transition to the indefinite future, but can develop uh, a grassroots or eco-socialist or a people's Green New Deal agenda that we can start working on now. So it. It sounds like a so I want I want to come back at some point to 
some local activities that are happening in Vermont, because um, this podcast is primarily focused on, you know, uh, within the within the borders of the green state, yeah. um, or the green mountain state. I always want to call it the green garden state, but that's just sort of like splicing together New Jersey and Vermont, which I don't think any of our listeners will appreciate. <laughs> But what it, you know, what it sounds so, like backing up on what you're saying and, and applying it to like other movements or other struggles, it sounds like you, you have, you're, you have a political theory that is to a large extent, maybe not, maybe abandoning is too strong of a word, but um, temporarily abandoning, we'll say, faith in a federal government that acts for and on behalf of people to a more decentralized model of of local community and support like so for example i don't see i don't see why the argument that you just made about climate couldn't be applied to us militarism for example which has you know local components in every single state or you know whatever issue you might want to extract that to um that was just a thought as you were talking um how do you see that in terms of like a political theory of change, not just for climate, but you know, for other th- uh, struggles that socialists might want to win and now or in the future. Right. So if, I think the important thing about local struggles is that they're available for people to directly participate in mm-hmm. and gain a sense of their power um, workers, working class can gain political education and direct experience with challenging resilient institutions. So every workplace, every municipality, every county, every state has a ruling class of entrenched interests that won't give up their privileges and power and projected profits without a fight. And that's what, that's a part of many of our struggles. We, we face an entrenched ruling class that doesn't want to give anything up and will only under duress and pressure. And if they think the alternative is worse. So that, um, the other side of it is that climate uh, well, global heating has to be addressed internationally. There are no local solutions to that. So this is not cutting off an international perspective. Like for instance, I think international solidarity with anti-pipeline fights in Africa or in Canada are extremely important because we have to be internationalists at the same time as we're figuring out a way for more people to engage in actual struggle. So let's pivot to um, what's going on locally that you're aware of. So you mentioned the airport expansion. Um, Could you give a brief overview of that? Absolutely. Yeah, so there's a group called People's Green New Deal, which is a group that and he agrees on a more radical approach to a Green New Deal than just through elections. And we helped start a coalition called um, the Coalition to Stop Burlington Airport Expansion. 
And Burlington Airport, like most airports, has plans to expand to a common day and increase in air travel over the next decades. And their um, expansion plans in their master plan at the airport account for, say, a 20 to 30% increase in flights over the next 10 or 15 years. And we know that the flights have bad impacts because it means more global heating emissions. And it also means more impact on surrounding neighborhoods uh, in South Burlington, Winooski, Williston, uh, parts of Burlington, and so on. There is a current a proposal from the city of Burlington's airport. The city of Burlington is the owner. Yeah. To rezone. Some people might not know, by the way, what, like, yeah. even though it's in South Burlington, that the city of Burlington owns the airport. Right. Yeah. So that's a kind of an appealing part about this campaign as well in terms of being able to make a difference. But uh, the uh, immediate fight is over the the request of the airport to rezone around 10 acres of land in what's called the Chamberlain neighborhood to from residential to commercial aviation uses. Now, there are many more acres in addition to that 10 acres that the airport owns and can expand in in the future. They're all zone residential right now. So we understand this 10 acres is a down payment on the rest. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, and all this will mean more dislocations and impacts on the neighborhood. And that's especially important because um, um, hundreds of working class people have been dislocated from the neighborhood because the city of Burlington has purchased and demolished homes uh, in this area, in this 50 acre area um, that the uh, federal government has determined are in an extremely high noise area and eligible for grants to be bought up. And, and this is all because of the F-16s and the F-35s and the military aircraft that are based at the airport. So we're seeing this as uh, the immediately the most impacted, dislocated neighborhood around the airport now has a buffer of some 50 acres of empty land that could have various uses. And now the airport wants to further encroach with more operations closer to the Chamberlain community. Mm-hmm. And the, the the coalition, you said it was coalition to stop the Burlington Airport expansion? Or yes. Just, and and the demand is just to not, to not, to just to put a drop lines around those 10 acres. And is it, have you guys um, had any discussions with the anti F-35 crowd around the issue or is, do you see those two things as, as related as of now, 
or is it kind of like a separate campaign? Yeah, I'd say there's a lot of overlap. The immediate demand is to the, the immediate thing is to stop the re- stop the rezoning. So yeah. there's a campaign to convince the rezoning task force and planning commission not to approve it. Mm-hmm. But I think there is generally interest in um, how to reorient the airport away from continual endless expansion and also away from reliance on uh, um, F-35s and military aircraft and weapons of mass destruction that have a devastating environmental impact on the area. So I think one thing that kind of of connects these campaigns is that it was the F-16s and the F-35s that cleared the land in the first place because of the extreme noise. So the airport management um, has taken advantage of this in order to clear land for mm-hmm. airport expansion. So historically, they're very much related. And I think a lot of people understand the connection between those two things. Yeah. What I don't think people understand unless they live in one of those neighborhoods is the negative impact of your life on a day- day-to-day basis. Um, and that it disproportionately in, in, in this area anyway, and I think pretty much everywhere where there's an airport, these things always disproportionately affect poor and working class people. It's never, you know, there's never going to be an expansion where F-35s flow over, fly over the hill section of, of Burlington. Like that's never going to happen. Um, it just by default, they're protected. Um, and I, I, you know, so I don't know if I really discussed this on the podcast before, but my wife and I just moved to Virgen's because we were in Winooski directly over the flight path of the F-35s. And the commercial traffic was less bothersome there, but if it was increased 30 or 40%, it would be, it would start to get pretty, you know, it'd be encroaching. Um, it's the, it's a low, low volume, but the frequency actually matters where the F-35s are, unbearably loud if you're outside underneath them um, to the point where you have to plug your ears to avoid pain, which is pretty nuts actually. So we're fortunate enough that we had the means to to leave, but at the same time, that's where we're, we're resettling people who have fled war zones. Not, not so, not so kind uh, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry you had to leave your, your home in Winooski. Um, the other part of it is poor working class and in places like Winooski, largely people of color. So there's a big aspect of environmental racism in how the airport and the city of Burlington have been operating. And it's really tragic because there's economic imperatives that force people into really bad environmental conditions I was in the Chamberlain neighborhood last weekend canvassing and talking to people. And um, some owner, some homeowners said that there are children returning to the neighborhood and that that was a good thing because it's nice to have kids around. But what's happening is that these are the only affordable houses for younger families. And it may be their parents' house or in any case, there's a, there's a 
uh, what do you call it, a discount for buying <laughs> around <laughs> the airport. E e even though the prices are extremely high, it is a bit cheaper than elsewhere. And people are, you know, making the calculation. Um, yeah. And um, which you shouldn't have to make. Yeah. You, know, you shouldn't have to. You should. Uh, and this goes into like, it's not unrelated, and eventually, if we talk long enough, we would just probably go through every single issue and circle back to climate change. Yeah, but it's not unrelated to just the housing, the housing crisis in Vermont and in the Chittenden County area in particular. I mean, that's one reason why I ended up moving out of Chittenden and moving to Addison. There just is hardly any places for like a relatively younger family with a child to like purchase a home and just be able to, or even rent, to be honest, like zero, <laughs> just even to do anything to live in, in Chittenden County. It's extremely difficult. Um, yeah. So the main issues around these, this airport campaign, housing justice. Uh, yeah. There is a lack of affordable housing, and the airport not only has destroyed afford more affordable housing, but is foreclosing the possibility of that land ever being used for housing by putting airport operations on it. And then the racism of all this as well, because of the impact on uh, communities that have a high proportion of people of color, and then climate, mm -hmm. that this is a path that airport is taking to um, substantially increase emissions through uh, passenger flight and through commercial aviation. And both of these, as you said, um, it's not a negligible in impact. If you are around the airport, you smell the exhaust. People who live near there complain about, you know, different kinds of planes always overhead. <laughs> <laughs> so it is mostly the extremely loud um, military F-35 planes, but it's also this kind of the constant uh, background noise of airport operations that impacts people as well. All right, Paul, we'll leave it there. Um, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Uh, it's been very enlightening. And I will put a link to the um, article you wrote for Tempest in the show notes so anybody listening can go find that. And is there a URL for the um, airport expansion? Yes, I can, uh, I can get you the contact information for that. And thanks for covering this. Um, we're at the beginning of this campaign and anyone who wants to join us is more than welcome. All right. Thank you very much. Have a great afternoon. Okay. Thanks, Anthony.